0: But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Jesus Christ, who, while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession... I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and might forever. Amen.
1: will you join me in prayer God of grace we um, are noticing that people are in transition in this season it's a season where people are transitioning their wardrobe and they're getting coats out of boxes getting ready for cold weather and people are up on ladders, cleaning out rain gutters, getting ready for rain. And maybe we feel today like we're in some kind of transition spiritually. And, and that we're here for some reason because the season is changing and we're drawing closer to you. And we feel your draw or we're, we feel ourselves pulling away. And we might have some, some feelings about that this morning and what we'd like to be doing instead. Now, we come from all kinds of places on the spectrum of belief and doubt and the spectrum of uh, joy or suffering. And though this is true, though, though all of us come in here from different places, the universal truth is that we all need to confess. We all need to identify our mess. We all are more broken and more of a mess than we care to admit. And that won't change through whatever transition we're going through. And neither will your love, which says we're more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever imagined. Will you help us to know that that is true and speak to us through that kind of grace that reaches out towards our mess? Will you reach out to us today? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you've heard about the bill in Congress, right? The the Chinese currency bill. I mean, you've all been following this, I'm sure. So this bill is, I think it's on its way to the House, passed in the Senate. And um, a lot of you are going, what on earth are we talking about today? Um, well, so this bill addresses the under... Valuing of Chinese currency, that China undervalues their currency, and I quite frankly have no idea how to understand that and understand why it's a problem. Um, I just I have no tools in the you know the Mark machine up here to to deal with what that means and how to understand it and why it matters. Um, and I'm I, I'm not helped by when I, I look at. The, even doing a little bit of research, and I find these competing... Uh, of course, it's politics, so there's competing viewpoints, but competing experts telling me two different things. Even if I begin to understand what, you know, how a country can undervalue their currency, I don't understand how that's possible and, and why that has implications on our economy. I just don't understand it. But then I go and I start to feel like I'm understanding it, and then I read this expert, Fred Bergston uh, director of the Washington-based Peterson Institute for International Economics. He estimates that a 20% rise in the Chinese currency would reduce the U.S. trade deficit by somewhere between 50 and $100 billion at a gain of about 6,000 jobs for every $1 billion of improvement in trade balance. That means that a $100 billion uh, difference would work out to 600,000 new jobs in the U.S., he, that's what he says, at least. And then there's um, uh, Derek Skizzers, Ph.D., with the Heritage Foundation. He says, there is no genuine evidence to support this claim. As shown below, over the past 20 years, U.S. unemployment has been low when the Chinese currency is weak and high when it's strong. It has been so, it has been so because American, not Chinese, policies determine unemployment levels the the yuan I don't know if that's the right way you say it the chinese currency the yuan is incidental congressional action to punish china for its exchange rate policy such as that that's now being considered will do nothing to create jobs in the us totally opposite viewpoint and i don't quite frankly know at all where i stand or i'm not here to bring up that bill um but just because you know see there's only there's 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 economics people who might see the headline on that article and go, I want to read about that. And then there's the rest of us, and there's one other category of person that looks at that headline, and that's preachers who scan the news for illustrations for their sermons. Um, And so, you know, this idea of the undervalued currency applies very directly to what we're talking about today, and that is that there is something that the Christian faith offers to you that is like an undervalued currency. We all undervalue it, and we have other things. You could say that they're counterfeit currencies that are overvalued. You look at this passage, it's talking about money, and and you notice right away that it doesn't assume that having money is bad. The the Bible doesn't do that with created things. It doesn't say, well, let's look at all of creation and find the evil things and put them over here and the good things and put them over here. Um, All was created good, and God's work in the world is about renewing all good Uh, all good creation um, to be used in a good direction again. So money is more of a neutral thing and it's assumed that there are rich people. Paul is writing to the pastor, Timothy, and he's talking about all these very practical issues and all of a sudden he gets to this one, he gets to money, and he's assuming there's, there's rich Christians. That's the assumption. There's Christians with money. So it isn't just, this isn't just a message about money being bad it's a, it, you can see specifically it's about the love of money and the desire for money we see this in some of these the first few verses we read so it's the love of money and the desire for wealth that cuts across uh, all categories um, so that there's all kinds of people who as, as you look at this passage there's all kinds of us who this applies to maybe you're the person who you just really do not have much you're in a season where you just have very little um, and yet You know exactly, if you had more money, you know exactly where it would go. You know how you would spend it. You know what things you really, maybe you're embarrassed even, that you're unable to maintain or to have or to wear um, or to talk about because you don't have money. There's a desire for money. Or there's, maybe you're doing okay. Maybe you're doing just fine financially. Um, But you have this this funny little uh, two-part thing going on. On the one hand, when it comes to giving away money, which you can look at not only the Bible, but studies that show that happiness comes along with those who are generous and give their money away. Yet when it comes to you and that checkbook or that card um, or, that, or that money or that wallet, it seems like there's a force field pressing against any activity on that front about doing anything. There's just this pressure you know, just moving against it, just pushing against it. And yet over here, there's, there's places in your life, there's places you could go. There's, there's uh, stores like clothing department stores and or maybe sporting goods stores or maybe electronic stores where it's as if you're praying for there to be a force field working against the the, the plastic flying out of your pocket practically to, to get these things that you... And so there's this other dynamic over here. Um, the desire for money or the desire to use money to get the things that really make that you're chasing after to make you happy there's someone who you might be doing better than you've ever done before in your life you make more money than your parents ever made and yet there's there's another dynamic at work what do you know but it's becoming more and more acute even now what you don't yet have and what do you know but you're not you're giving away less you're just like all the statistics show. You're giving away less than you ever did before, percentage-wise. The desire for money, the love of money. And, and then there's other people, too. There's, those, there's the exact tithers, perhaps. Maybe someone who grows up in the church or became a Christian and saw this principle. It's the closest thing to a rule on how much to give that the Bible has. You know, 10%. So there's, there's this regimented giving of, of 10% of what is of income, and that you know and that goes along with being in an okay place financially and being pretty frugal and stewardly of money but it, there's this there's this ability to save <laughs> there's this ability to save money and to kind of sock it away that actually although it feels stewardly it starts to become where your hope lies and what you're depending on and it in the end it turns out you could go 2 years without a job because you're so good at saving and that has become your stability factor. That is where you say okay, I'm okay if I can keep that going, if I have that there. Or someone who it's terrifying, they never the idea of tithing is is alien and from some other planet, but there is the beginning of a spark of wanting to give and understanding how good God is and maybe there's going to be a phase where 2% of of income is starting to be given away for the first time ever in life and it's so terribly hard and difficult and counterintuitive from all these places we're all affected by the desire for wealth the desire for money um, and the gospel of Jesus Christ says that um, there is something offered to you that um, is a, like a new uh, currency in your life and it's an undervalued one. And what you're settling for right now in some way is a counterfeit currency. Not only have you overvalued it, it's just, it, it's really worthless compared to what you can have, the currency you can have. So it goes like this. In Christ, the Christian says, in Christ, I have this currency. In Christ. I have this new currency that has to do with forgiveness and um, justification before God in Christ. Um, it has to do with joy and peace that's available to, available to me in Christ. It's a new currency. And if you don't know at all what I'm talking about with that, just hang around for a while. Dig in to, um, to worship or to community pods, our small groups, or into the, the Bible. And, may, and maybe you won't. Or maybe someday when you're at just some kind of spot in life, you'll finally start to dig around and start to get the sense that there's... What is it, what is it that, Jesus, that the Bible says Jesus does for us? And you begin to get the dynamics if you look and you catch some of those details. And if you pray for God to help you understand, you begin to catch some of what it means for you, what Christ has done, the new currency. Maybe that's even why you're here today, because that process is starting to happen. But basically, in Christ, I have a new currency. It outspends all the counterfeit currencies, and it actually begins to facilitate inward change that I've always needed, since I needed, but was unable, unable to get through other counterfeit currencies. So, what's your currency? It's not necessarily money, but it probably you can probably see it in how you use money. Uh, your currency, what's driving you, what, where you think the most value is in life. And so, in a sense, you go after these things. Maybe it's compliments. Maybe it's the opinions of others. That's your true currency in life. Maybe it's being knowledgeable. Let me just list a few things. Maybe it's being in control. Maybe it's being needed to fix and to clean up other people's uh, situations in life to be sort of a savior. Maybe it's busyness. Maybe it's stability. It's your currency. That's what really talks in your life. Predictability. Or maybe your reputation. Your status, maybe. What's your currency? What's driving you in life? What it ends up being is something good Remember the Bible's not separating the good from that it's something good, but you're putting unrealistic expectations on it to deliver what it never can. Let me put it another way it's something your currency is probably is something that God could use in your life, and instead you've made it something of a God in your life. so you need to do a sort of currency exchange if you look at uh, if you look at um The website of the of the euro, you know, the currency of the I think it's of the European Union, the currency, the euro. You can see a map, and it shows in different colors which um, over the last uh, I forget how many years. um, What's the progression of which nations have adopted the euro and switched their currency? And there's some that have that have held out because they're they think their currency is more valuable. I don't know how that works again. Limited up here, but. But there's, in a a very real sense, there's a a point that you are invited through Scripture to come to today that that is, do you want to exchange your currency? Do you want to begin that path of saying, maybe I've overvalued this and undervalued this, and maybe I need a big switcheroo that has to happen with these two things, these currencies. That's what the Bible's inviting you to do. And so, how does someone do that? Well, I think there's two things that this passage helps us answer Um, uh, And it is how First, these are the two things that need to happen You need to discover the weakness of your currency Your current currency And you need to uh, discover the strength of God's currency So discover the weakness of yours and the strength of God's Let's look at those two things that this passage helps us see Now, um, the weakness of your currency The weakness of putting your hope in wealth Or in using wealth to get what your currency is this is really interesting. Let me just read this um, at verse nine. Let's see, if we see the weakness of money, of hope in money. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap. Now you're reading that and you say, "Okay, yes, I can agree with that. That's good. That's a good warning. Thank you, Bible, for that for that warning." You read on and it says and into foolish and harmful desires. You stop and you say, okay, a little extra emphasis. That's good. Probably good. Probably needed. You know, it's, it's a serious topic. It can It's a trap, you know. Give me a little extra emphasis there. And then you read on. That plunge people into ruin and destruction. <laughs> and you're going, okay, Bible. A little... Uh, Dramatic here, aren't we? Aren't we being a little dramatic? And it goes, and so maybe you even mentally start to um, write it off a little bit. And it, but it goes on. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's not done. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. All right, you know, <laughs> isn't it? Isn't it just a little overboard here? Isn't that too much? Well, I'll tell you what. If you, if money has ever for you if you've ever seen the ruin and destruction maybe in your family maybe in yourself if you've ever seen this you're not closing it and kind of no 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 Jesus you know Jesus said in Luke chapter 12 he says watch out this idea of of a trap really resonates um, the same way with something Jesus said watch out be on your guard against all kinds of greed Um, It's like a trap. Watch out. Be on your guard. Jesus doesn't say that about adultery, for example. Watch out for all kinds of adultery. Why does he say it with money? Because with adultery, with a sin like adultery, you're the first one to know that you're committing it. Right? Nobody wakes up or nobody's committing adultery and suddenly stops and says, you're not my spouse. (laughs) Oh didn't realize what was happening there um, and and there's this other there's this dynamic of um, people will come to a, a pastor, even a, a young kind of inexperienced pastor like myself, and they 'll confess they 'll admit adultery, but nobody's coming to me talking about their problem with greed. Can I set up an appointment to talk about how I've got this issue with greed um, It's like a trap. With adultery, you're the first person to know you're committing it. With greed, you could be the last one to know that you have a problem with greed. So all this, what seems like maybe hyperbole, is just helping us see the weakness, the weakness uh, and the ease with which we fall into the trap of money. Um, And then verse 17, uh, verse 17 says this. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is, and then if you're going to fill in the blank, you might say, you know, wealth, which is awesome. Well, that's what, you know, some people might want to say. Um, wealth, which is, you know, putting your hope in wealth is, well, it's it's a little tenuous. It's, it's, it's a little bit of a... Um, to be unshaky ground. It's to put your hope in wealth is somewhat unbalanced. No, so uncertain. To put your your hope in wealth is so uncertain. And this wasn't even written in the midst of the you know the 2008 you know financial crisis that we're still all kind of in the midst of the fallout from and in the stock market stuff as of late. So and I mean look we we in a lot of times in most of my life, the people I lived around and talked to would not have agreed much with that, but now so many of us say, yeah, and we know uh-huh wealth and and jobs and all that you know it's so uncertain, but just watch until watch for a while because then this the job market will recover, and the stock market will become more dependable, and suddenly we pick up right where we left off, and we look at a word like you know wealth being." hope and wealth being so uncertain. And we go kind of go, I don't know if I really believe that. Is it really that uncertain? And verse 19 brings out perhaps the biggest point, the biggest overarching umbrella point about the weakness of putting hope in wealth. Um, and it's basically saying if you are being drawn to desire money, if you are being drawn to put your hope in wealth and financial security then you are being drawn towards what is not truly life it's counterfeit it's sort of an implicit point you look at the end of verse 19 and it says so that they may those who who put their hope in God as a firm foundation so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life an implication is to not do so is the life that is not truly life and quite frankly that again is very convicting because i think we really think our impulse is that that more money, more wealth, really will give us the enjoyment in life that we need. Really will answer some of the biggest problems that we have in life. You know, if I just had, if I just had ten thousand more dollars, oh, you know what? I'd finally have this sort of enjoyment, this joy. You know, this, these problems I'm dealing with will go away. Or maybe it's not. I mean, there's all kinds of different ways you might have to. Be on a scale with that. Ten thousand dollars. Well, if I just had ten thousand dollars more a year, you know, if that, if that was our salary, if that was my salary, then, then, oh, then I could reach that level of enjoyment I've been wrestling to have. Or maybe it's maybe you have to go a little higher. If I just had a salary that was ten thousand more a month, so then I could, then I could finally, you know, then I could finally, you know, be at that spot that I've been just struggling to be at. I'm glad you laughed at that. Well, do you notice that verse 17 says that God the Christians put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. God. Not not 10,000 more dollars. God. Everything. And that is in verse 19, that is the life that is truly life. So, okay. We've looked a little bit at the weakness Of of our currency, but let's look at the strength of God's currency, because uh, verse eight talks about a contentment that you may be struggled to know that you have, that you'll ever have. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. It's a sort of contentment. Um, John Newton wrote a song, and and in that song were these words. He wrote a hymn. It goes like this: By prayer let me wrestle, and He will perform. With Christ in my vessel. I smile at the storm. With Christ in my vessel, I smile at the storm. Christ in my vessel, I smile at the storm. That's contentment. That's reaching this kind of place where, you know, as Paul's writing, he says, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Contentment. And and you're probably saying to yourself, okay, that's good, contentment, but you know what, Let's let's be honest. I don't really... I don't, I don't really have that contentment. I don't think I, I'm troubled by the storm. I'm bothered. I'm not just saying with Christ in my vessel, I smile at the storm. Um, I get so anxious about my problems in life and money. How do I even get that? How do, I, how do you arrive at that? That seems impossible. And this contentment, it turns out, is a sort of dividend that you get by investing in the currency that God provides you. It's like a dividend that you get through investing in the currency that God provides you. And we must invest, in a sense, in the realities that uh, of what we have in Christ in order to uh, even be able to understand how we might be generous and willing to share, as verse 18 says. There's a sense in which so much of um, living in a way that you might desire to live, like that contentment, so much of it comes from needing so badly to have the, the gospel, what we call the gospel, and all the good things that you're given through Jesus, driven down deep into your life, just seeping down into the cracks of your life further and deeper. And so some of you sit here this morning and, and the idea of a Christian view of money is like an alien thing from another planet. And so the, you know the, there 's just a, an attempt maybe today by these words to, to create a chink in the armor, a little crack that some of this might start to get in, and others of you maybe you 've grabbed hold of the Christian faith well, in a newer way, and, and yet this is still each step of doing something like this and understanding the bible 's view of money is a, is a huge, big, difficult step, and others of you maybe may have grabbed hold of this for years and years, the idea of tithing, the idea of giving money away um, in large proportions, generosity, and yet each time you write a check or each time you want to give money generously, there's this, this is battle at work that's basically saying, there's a voice saying, this is crazy. You are crazy. Are you doing something ridiculous? And you need, uh, you need the gospel driven down deep into your soul, deep into the worries and stresses of your life. And let's just get at that through verse 7. For we brought nothing into the world, Paul says, and we can take nothing out of it. That's echoing something vivid that Job said in chapter one of of that book, where he says, Naked I come into the world, and naked I leave. Um, Nakedness in the Bible is not just nudity, vulnerability. At birth and at death, you're equally vulnerable in this world and before God. So why am I spending my life falsely trying to cover over and cover up and get stuff and get currency to cover over my vulnerability? And, and then the Bible says this, God covers your vulnerability and clothes your nakedness in the way that you never can. So all that that's happening between birth and death is attempting to do what you can't do and that only God can do. See, because when Jesus came, he became vulnerable, and he did whatever he, he, he took on voluntarily what you're spending your life trying to avoid. He took on vulnerability, he became naked on the cross. He became rejected. Why would he do that? So that he could clothe you with His righteousness. And so, just let's put it in terms of going to church. So, why, why would I go to church? Why would I try to go to church so that I could come, uh, learn the things that I need to do? Learn to put on the clothes I need to put on to make God happy. And maybe if I go enough, I'll start to look a little. I'll look good enough in God's eyes. No. If you put it in terms of going to church, go to church, maybe so that little by little, each time I go to church or I go to community pot or I look at read my Bible a little bit more, each time I might a little bit more believe that I'm already clothed with the righteousness of God, with the adoption to be God's child just as Jesus was already, and now that's all mine. All my vulnerability covered. I'm an heir to the throne. The Bible says, princes and princesses in the courtroom of God's house, God's palace. So, that's how a Christian can then say, maybe just little by little, but begin to say and believe, with Christ in my vessel, I smile at the storm. Wake up to the trap. Be a little bit disturbed by the weakness of your currency. See the strength of God's currency and let him drive the truth of the gospel deeper and deeper into your heart. And you'll become a more generous person. And you'll trust in money way less. Let us pray. Dear God, we cannot do hardly anything, it usually seems, to change our hearts. And maybe maybe we'll find some inspiration through your help and through your Holy Spirit to open our hearts and maybe you'll then meet us and show us more of your grace. As some of us sit here this morning with a lot of trouble and we maybe are in a place where we don't even feel like we know ourselves. We're so lost. The struggles that we've been facing are squashing us. We need your help. All of us. Would you show yourself to us Would you show us the new status we have in Christ? And would you help us to incorporate that into our daily life? In Jesus' name, by the power of your Holy Spirit, amen.